chapter 2. We appreciate the presence of everyone here. We have some visiting today. I suppose some are here because it's Mother's Day. They're here visiting mothers. I think we probably have some absent that are usually here because it's Mother's Day. They're uh, gone to see their mothers. And uh, I would encourage everybody to think about your mothers today. Appreciate our mothers and the good things that they've done for us through the years. And we have a couple of mothers-to-be among our number as well. And uh, we're excited about that. That they may come when your mother is not with you anymore. And uh, you still think about her on Mother's Day. Think about the good influence that she's been in your life. And so, as you have the opportunity today, take some time to tell your mother how much you appreciate her and give her some, uh, some encouragement that way. But my sermon's not about Mother's Day today. And so we're going to talk about some other things. Let's think about Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 tells us the events on the day of Pentecost, the first day of Pentecost, following the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus giving uh, the great commission to the apostles to make disciples of every nation. He told, Jesus told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come upon them, which they did. And we can read about that happening here in Acts chapter 2. It's really a, a momentous day in the history of God's effort to save men. These events had been in the mind of God really in eternity. And so this isn't something that just happened uh, as a coincidental uh, consequence of a series of events. These events had really been in God's mind for a long, long time. They had been prophesied about in passages like Isaiah the second chapter and Joel the second chapter. At this point, Christ has come into the world. He's accomplished His work. He's died on the cross, been buried, been raised on the third day. He's ascended to God's right hand by this time. And so the time was right for God to act. And He does act, and He acts in a rather dramatic way here on the day of Pentecost. The, the record tells us that there were men in Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, devout men dwelling in Jerusalem at that time, gathered together in Jerusalem for that day, the day of Pentecost. There was a great noise like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And then there were tongues of fire that descended and they lighted on the apostles who then began to speak in other languages and to communicate the message, the gospel, the saving message of Christ to the people who were gathered there on that day. We know what Peter preached about. It's recorded for us. He talked about the death of Jesus, and he talked about the resurrection of Jesus, giving evidence, supporting evidence that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. He tells the people what they need to do in response to the gospel in order to have the forgiveness of their sins. He tells them to know with certainty that God has made Jesus of Nazareth both Lord and Christ. And he tells them then to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of their sins, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know the result of that. We know that 3,000 on that day, don't know how many were gathered there in total, but we do know that 3,000 on that day received the word and were baptized. But then what? what? What happened to these disciples after the day of Pentecost? 
What happened to them following this particular day and these events? What did these disciples do once they had become disciples of Jesus? Once that their sins were forgiven and they were grouped together, they were joined together as disciples in the church of Jesus Christ. What, what did they do then? You see, that's our situation, isn't it? We're like them in that regard. Now, we weren't there on the day of Pentecost, and what's going to happen, what happened on the day of Pentecost is not going to happen again in our, in our experience, but we're like them in that we become disciples. And we're followers of Jesus. We're believers. We're baptized, penitent believers. Now, what are we supposed to do? How are we to proceed uh, having become disciples? Well, we can look at what they did and how they proceeded, and then we can follow that ourselves. We can do as they did. And so it's our good fortune, it's our blessing that we have a record of those things, what they did after Pentecost. And that sets a pattern for us, doesn't it? That sets an example for us. And so we as disciples, being what they were, can please God by doing what they did. And so we want to look at that this morning. The events uh, followed by the disciples after Pentecost, following Pentecost. Now these are one of, this is one of those sermons that as I got into it and started to prepare it, I thought, this is a lot more than I can cover in the time that I've got left this morning. I'm not going to tell you how much time that is. But in just the time that I've got left, much more than I could cover. So I made two sermons out of it, part one this morning, part two tonight. We're going to look simply at one verse this morning, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Verse 41 tells us, So then those who had received His word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so we're just going to look at this verse. This sets a pattern for us, doesn't it? This sets, this sets a course for us. Just as they did these things and please God, we can do these things and please God as well. The first thing I'll just highlight is that they were continually devoting themselves to the things that were mentioned here. Uh, your version might say they continued steadfastly in them. They were not casual about these things. These were not occasional things or things they did occasionally. And so not casual, not occasional, continued steadfastly in them, continually devoted themselves to them. It's a word that's used several times, especially in the book of Acts, connected with prayer. For example, earlier in this chapter, Acts 1 verse 14, Paul says that, or Peter said, or Luke says, I'll get it right in a minute, that the number of the followers of Jesus were together and they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And so they weren't haphazard about it, were they, if they were continually devoted to prayer? Wasn't an occasional thing, wasn't a casual thing for them. And so there was some intensity about it, there was some regularity about it, there was some continual activity going on continually devoted to prayer. And you can see that connection in several other places in the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, look at that example. This is the occasion when uh, the church in Jerusalem uh, focused on filling the needs of some of the widows in the congregation there. And they select seven men to, to see to that. And the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer 
into the ministry of the Word. We are going to devote ourselves to prayer. It's not going to be casual for us. It's not going to be haphazard or sporadic. We're going to focus on that and do it consistently and, and do it regularly. And so that's the idea here. They were continually devoting themselves to these things. So if we're going to follow their example, if we're going to follow the pattern that they've set for us, we need to continually devote ourselves to these things. Again, not every now and then, not occasionally, not haphazardly or sporadically. Some intensity, some regularity, some focus needs to be on these things. The first thing is the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Now it's important that they continue in the apostles' doctrine. Jesus gives the apostles the power and the authority to teach. In Matthew chapter 3, several other passages, parallel passages in the Gospels, Jesus selects a group of men from His disciples, and He equips them to go out and take His Gospel in a special way, take His message to the world. They're called apostles. Sometimes that group is simply referred to as the Twelve. Jesus gives them authority to teach in an official capacity. And so they're not just repeating the things that they've learned from other men, other Christians. They are the conduit through which the Spirit communicates His message to men. They teach with authority. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked His disciples the question, the apostles the question, Who do men say that I am? You remember that occasion? Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets and so forth. Well, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, was Peter's response. And Jesus says to him in part, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now on that occasion, those words are directed to Peter individually, specifically. And you, Peter, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But in chapter 18, in verse 18, the same thing is said to the whole group of apostles. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so the apostles have special authority given to them by Christ to bind and loose. That is to require people to do God's command, whatever those requirements are, to bind them and, and to loose, to permit uh, whatever God permits. And so that gives them some special authority. Why is it that the early disciples followed the apostles' doctrine? Because they've, given this, they've been given this special authority to bind and loose. And if you look through the chapters, the opening chapters of the book of Acts, you'll find the apostles taking the lead in these important matters. It's Peter that stands up with the eleven on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel, Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. We find in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, it's the apostles that are doing miracles, confirming the word, the truthfulness of the word that they had preached. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we find it's the apostles who are taking the lead in uh, meeting the needs of uh, the, the widows in the congregation at that time. In Acts chapter 10, we find it's Peter, an apostle, going to the home of Cornelius and introducing the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts 15, it's the apostles that are taking the lead in settling the problem of circumcision. And so the apostles are especially set apart 
as God's representatives, as establishing right doctrine and right practice in the church. In Romans chapter 1, notice that Paul says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And that's typical of Paul's writing, isn't it? He identifies himself in the very beginning of his epistles, I am an apostle. Now, why would he do that? As an apostle, I speak in an official capacity, so to speak, uh, as a representative of, of Christ. And so the apostles establish right doctrine and practice among the disciples. They represent Christ in a special way. They speak for Him in an official way. And so Matthew chapter 10 and verse 40, as Jesus sends His apostles out, He tells them, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever hears you, hears me. And so it's really no wonder then, is it, that these early disciples, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Now we have a record of that doctrine in the New Testament. And so when we read the New Testament, we're reading the teaching of the apostles. A couple of interesting passages to just to develop this a little bit further, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 tells us that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And so when we read, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 3 of Ephesians, when we read what he writes, we can get his insight into the mystery of Christ. As we follow that and put it into practice, we the church are being built up on the foundation set by the apostles. The apostles' teaching then is to be passed along from generation to generation. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, the things that you've learned from me among many witnesses, you commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we've got the Spirit revealing His will to the apostles, the apostles, the apostles communicating that to others. It's being written down and it's preserved for us. So the Apostle Doctrine forms a unified, coherent body of doctrine or body of teaching. And so we abide in or continually devote ourselves to the Apostle's Doctrine, a, a, a unified, coherent body of doctrine. Uh, Peter and Paul, Galatians chapter 2 tells us in verse 7 that uh, they taught the same thing. So Peter didn't teach one thing and Paul another thing. They're teaching the same thing. Paul taught the same thing in every church. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17 tells us, and Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 5 speaks of one, you know, one faith, one body of doctrine. Jude tells us that the faith has been once delivered to the saints. And so our duty as disciples of Jesus is to discover the Apostles' Doctrine, and hold to it and put it into practice. Now that, that's a crucial point. And I'm not sure we, we you know, appreciate how crucial a point that is. That's a crucial point. What do we do? How do we proceed? What are we to teach? What are we to practice? Well, we want to practice the Apostles' Doctrine. We want to stay within the Apostles' Doctrine. And so whatever the limits of that doctrine are, that's, that's where we want to stay. We want to abide within the apostle doctrine and not go outside of that. They are, as we've indicated before, specially appointed representatives of Christ 
who speak in an official way for Him. So as a church, as individual Christians, we want to continue steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine. Doesn't need to be updated, doesn't become obsolete. It's God's Word for His church for all time. Okay, so that's, that's why we do what we do. We are trying to abide within the Apostles' doctrine. And if we can, when asked, say, you know, why do you do this? Turn to the Apostles' teaching in the New Testament. Well, then we know, well, we're abiding within that. Okay? All right, the second thing they continually devoted themselves to was fellowship. The Apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship is, is partnership. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 7, Peter and Andrew and James and John were partners in fishing business. Apparently they had a fishing business and they were in fellowship, so to speak, in that business. The same, at least the same basic word used there. It is to be a partner uh, with someone, to participate in something together. It really describes a relationship of cooperation, working together toward a common goal, receiving the benefits and taking on the responsibilities uh, of, uh, of this common goal, taking those things on together. You can see it, you can see it for example, in a team. The, these teammates are focused on a common goal, and so they strive toward that goal, toward uh, achieving that goal, working together in partnership. And so they are in fellowship in that endeavor. You can see it in business, you can see it in a family, and we hope you can see it in the church as well. Today, fellowship is often seen as participating in a social or recreational activity. That's not the way it's discussed in the New Testament. It's possible, this relationship is possible, because there is agreement between the parties. And so, the two things are linked together here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And so, these first disciples were in partnership with each other, uh, they were working together in the Lord's cause and so forth, this relationship that they have with each other. But that relationship is possible because they're all devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And so, uh, and so there's a link between them. Let's say Wayne and I, we, we wanted to be business partners. We get along pretty well. We're friends. We know each other well. And we decide, well, let's just go into business together. And, uh, you know, I want to sell pizzas and Wayne wants to build houses. Now, that, that's, that's not going to be a fellowship that works, is it? We, because we're not in agreement. There has to be agreement for there to be this relationship, this fellowship, this partnership. Even if we were to agree on some basic and fundamental things, if there's not substantial agreement between us, well, the partnership is not going to work. And so in order for us to be in fellowship with each other, According to this passage, there has to be agreement to follow the apostles' doctrine. Now, look at Galatians chapter 2 as a good illustration of this. Paul meets uh, Peter and uh, James and John, some who are leaders in the church at, at Jerusalem. And it says in verse 7, when, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. When they saw that I had been entrusted to the gospel, 
and I went to the Gentiles, just as they had been entrusted with the gospel going to the Jews. Same gospel. We're, we're in agreement on teaching the gospel. Then they extend the right hand of fellowship. Then we see, hey, we're partners in this endeavor. How can there be fellowship, partnership, joint participation without fundamental agreement? What fellowship does light have with darkness? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 says. Amos chapter 3 and verse 3 asks, How can two walk together unless there's agreement between them? So how can there be partnership and fellowship without agreement? doesn't work in business. It won't work on a team if there's not agreement among the teammates. And it won't work in the church either. And so we want to continue in fellowship, in partnership, by being mutually devoted to the apostles' doctrine. That's what happened in the early church, and that's our goal as well. The third thing that he talks about is the breaking of bread. And so they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, this relationship that they have with one another as disciples in Jesus, and they continually devote themselves to the breaking of bread. Or, maybe a little bit more literally, to the breaking of the bread. And so, uh, I don't know if any translations are translated there, but there's definitely an article before bread in, in the text. And so, the breaking of the bread. Now, a little bit later in the chapter, he'll talk about them breaking bread at home. No, article, no definite article there. There's breaking bread. Now, this is the breaking of the bread. And so it seems as though he has some specific bread in mind, and some special bread in mind, the breaking of the bread. And so what would that bread be to Christians? Well, it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has always been a special occasion to disciples of Christ. It's really the highlight of our week, isn't it? I mean, as, as disciples, as Christians, as members in the Lord's Church, gathering together with others to especially focus on and proclaim the death of Jesus, that, that's really the highlight of our week. And so it's this very special occasion. Jesus encourages His disciples as He institutes the Lord's Supper, do this in memory of Me. And so He's suggesting that they continue to observe the Lord's Supper and do it in His memory. We find in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 that the disciples met on the first day of the week to break bread, that is, to observe the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul deals with some problems there in the church at Corinth having to do with the Lord's Supper. But he tells them to examine themselves, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. And so Paul is suggesting they continue, do it in the correct way, but continue to observe the Lord's Supper. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us that there are some serious consequences that follow if we neglect to observe the Lord's Supper properly. And so he says in verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. I take that to mean they're dead spiritually. So the Lord's Supper is critical in our spiritual life. Keeps us focused. Keeps us focused on spiritual things. Keeps the death of Jesus in the forefront of our mind and so forth. And so if we go week after week after week neglecting to go through this uh, practice, uh, we suffer the consequences. We don't want to neglect 
the Lord's Supper. There's not anything supernatural about the Lord's Supper, but it's a, it is a time of special reflection on our relationship with God in Christ. It refreshes our spirits. It helps us eliminate the dross that's in our lives. As we think about our lives, we, we eliminate the things that ought not be there. It renews our commitment to the Lord. It makes us more grateful. The early disciples continually devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. They didn't do it casually. They didn't do it occasionally. They were devoted to it. They did it consistently with fervency and some intensity. How about us? We following this pattern ourselves in observing the Lord's Supper? Do we do it in a focused sort of way? Are we just occasional about it? Are, are we regular about it? Are, are we intense about it? Are we casual? The idea of continually devoting, continuing steadfastly in this really ought to give us the answer to those questions. And then finally, they continually devoted themselves to prayer. I don't know if you've ever done this, but just a, a kind of a brief survey of uh, how often the idea of prayer occurs in the, Acts, in the book of Acts is it's pretty revealing. You know? Really many more times than most New Testament books. The, the only other book that comes close is the book of Matthew. In uh, the book of Acts, we find prayer mentioned 29 times. 24 times in the book of Luke. The next closest is Matthew. Most books of the New Testament mention prayer maybe three, four, five times. The book of Acts, almost 30 times. And so you can see, these early disciples are continually devoting themselves to prayer. Let's look at just a few examples. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, when Peter and John are released from prison, they go and join themselves to the other disciples there. And when they had prayed, verse 31 says, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And so when they prayed, so they came together and they were praying about their circumstances. In Acts chapter 4, chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul says, we will devote ourselves, not Paul, uh, but uh, the apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. In verse 6, And these they brought before the disciples, the seven men chosen, and after praying they laid their hands on them. And we just go passage after passage after passage in the book of Acts where the disciples are praying. Now, I'll just make this observation we talk enough about prayer. We're, we're not ignorant of what the Bible teaches about prayer. You know? we, we know what the Bible teaches about prayer. We know that God hears our prayers. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. We know that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man is very effective. James chapter 5 and verse 16. We know that if we ask, we will receive. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. And we know that God invites us to pray. He asks us to pray. Kind of reminds me of Chuck on Wednesday night. Are there any comments? You know, he's asking the audience, please, you know, make, make a comment, make an observation, ask a question, get involved. Well, God is asking us, pray, get involved, respond. And so he asks us to pray. He invites us to pray. He wants us to pray. 
over and over, He invites us. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, uh, let your requests be made known to God. Colossians 4 and verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 John, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, pray without ceasing. The, the early disciples continually devoted themselves to prayer. As we said before, not occasionally, not haphazardly, not just when they got in trouble, but intensely and fervently and regularly they were devoting themselves to prayer. Do we devote ourselves to prayer? How about as a congregation? Do we devote ourselves to prayer as a local church? Can we be more fervent? Can we be more consistent? Can we do it better? If so, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. We read a little bit later in this, this chapter, Acts chapter 2, that the Lord was adding daily to their number those who were being saved. Is there a connection between them devoting themselves to these things and the church growing the way it did? Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, following that, putting it into practice. People could see the, the fellowship, the, the partnership, the joint participation, the relationship that they had with each other, these new Christians and their new faith in Christ. You see them devoting themselves to remembering the death of Jesus in the observance of the Lord's Supper and giving themselves to prayer. We can do that. If we can do those things, we'll be faithful, and we'll see the result of that in one form or another. We'll see the positive results. And so may we follow their example and devote ourselves to these things. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. You, Father, are certainly worthy of our worship and our adoration of our honor and the glory that we have to give. And we pray, Father, that you're pleased with our efforts today. Father, help us to see the example of these early Christians, these early disciples, how they pleased you by following in the word that you revealed through your apostles. Help us to see the relationship that they had with one another as disciples of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to see how they valued the breaking of the bread, the, the Lord's Supper, and the uh, proclamation of the death of Jesus through that, through that practice. And help us to see their devotion to prayer. And help us to see, Father, the, the good results from these things, the positive results, the growth and development of your church and your people. Father, we pray that we'll devote ourselves to these things that we'll practice them consistently and with intensity and fervency and not haphazardly or casually or occasionally. And Father, if that has been the case with us, with any one of us, help us to see that, Father, and help us to make the necessary corrections. We're so thankful, Father, that you're interested in us and in our lives and that you've made it possible for us to live in a way that pleases you. And Father, we pray that we will seek to do that each day of our life from here to eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're